0: Data breaches are a daily occurrence. So we want to make sure that that data is handled in a way that doesn't put your own security at risk down the road in some unintended fashion.
1: I am walking into the Monk School for Global Affairs and Public Policy. It's a beautiful building on Bloor Street. It is a bright sunny morning, and yet, Ahead of me, I see frosted glass. I see warning signs, cameras. This is not your typical university office bank. This is Citizen Lab. Ron Diebert is a professor of political science and founder and director of the Citizen Lab. At the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. As director of Citizen Lab, Ebert has overseen and been a contributing author to more than 120 reports, covering pathbreaking research on cyber espionage, commercial spyware, internet censorship, and human rights. These reports have been cited widely in global media, garnering 25 front-page exclusives in places like the New York Times, Washington Post, and other leading outlets. And this work has also been cited by policymakers, academics, and members of civil society as foundational to the understanding of digital technologies, human rights, and global security, and how these can, should, and should not interact with each other. Hi, Ron. Hi. So, you and your team at Citizen Lab reveal and expose things that powerful people would like to keep hidden. Why do you do this? And what risks do you run
0: why do we do this well uh to me it's the core mission of the citizen lab to expose things that are going on out there in the world especially in the digital domain that represent threats to human rights or civil liberties or some kind of abuse of power Um, there's so much of that going on now that is obscured by various levels of secrecy or given the nature of digital technologies, it's hard to see firsthand. There's so much stuff buried in our devices and in code. So um, we see our mission as doing this very careful evidence-based research to bring accountability to the digital space, but also to, to governments and corporations worldwide. I think we've um, cottoned on to some pretty good ways of doing this, frankly. It's gotten more refined over the years to the point now where um, we're exposing routinely some of the you know, most significant um,
1: nation-state espionage operations. If you think about, let's say, a book like your 2020 work, Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society, would any of the events, pandemic or otherwise, but particularly thinking about the pandemic's distortion effects on many things, over the past two years, would they, would they lead you to change your thesis?
0: No, actually, I started writing Reset um, just before the pandemic, and then uh, the deadline for my book was actually uh, in April, in that first phase of the pandemic in 2020, and so I was really buckling down as we went into lockdown, <laughs> and so uh, I was fortunate to be able to be just at the front edge of it, and I could see, okay, already this is reinforcing some of the points I was making. So. For example, our dependence on big tech platforms only deepened with the pandemic. And um, while a lot of people in the early days were saying how great this is, oh, we are all sitting at home watching Netflix, using Zoom, um, I uh, was thinking differently. Well, first of all, Zoom, how secure is it? And within, I think, a couple of weeks of the pandemic and the lockdown, we did a, a teardown of zoom and discovered that there were some pretty significant security vulnerabilities that we disclosed to the company and which they then fixed mm. I'm glad we did that helped improve the security of you know hundreds of millions of people sure. using zoom um, but then also with netflix i was um, one of the chapters in reset is about the often overlooked ecological implications of digital technologies mm. netflix is a great example of that it's powered by amazon web services and uh, Amazon happens to have one of the poorest sustainability track records. Uh, they get, a, I think, an E or a D from Greenpeace scorecard. Uh, they use fossil fuel to power their big data centers. So even though we were all commenting how, oh, we're not flying. This is good for the environment. We're watching Netflix. Very few people are realizing, actually, when you're watching Netflix and using those Zoom calls, you're actually drawing enormous resources Mm -hmm. from the natural environment and contributing to climate change. So it was a good opportunity to wake people up about a few of these things.
1: Emerging, let's say from a pandemic, in terms of, uh, I don't know, the weaponization of data, let's say, uh, there's a lot of debate these days about nefarious state actors versus, let's say, big tech as being, you know, which one really should we be more concerned about? Where would you fall on that question?
0: I'm not even sure it makes sense to divide it up that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, We live in a complicated society with all sorts of institutions, governments, corporations. When it comes to things like surveillance, Well, the fact of the matter is we built, or I don't know, we built, but we've kind of uh, sleepwalked into this digital ecosystem that is invasive by design and poorly regulated and prone to abuse. And um, that was principally for economic reasons. People came up with this brilliant idea that if we give stuff away for free in exchange for being able to monitor people's habits and then push advertising towards them, It would begin to make revenue, something that was kind of um, ephemeral in the early days of the internet. And it certainly took off. Surveillance capitalism. Surveillance capitalism. Um, That turned out to be highly convenient for government security agencies. So they don't have to go out and monitor people themselves. They can just go to a company like Facebook with a warrant or through some other means and say, yes we'd like all of the information about all of the people doing XYZ. Or they could go to the uh, telecommunications companies and and grab dumps of data that are circulating through cell towers. Um, So we've immersed ourselves in this environment where we've kind of turned our lives inside out, and there's all of this data about us that's circulating. That is a product of both economic changes, but also the fact that governments
1: recognize it's useful, and they use it for political surveillance. Okay, um, let's stay on that point for a moment. Can Can you help me with a marital problem? can you can you can you adjudicate something for me given your expertise i'll try my area. best i am a libra so i'm I okay I'm so good so I, let's see know, if you can do that for this particular experience my wife and i went to london it's Here, your fault let's just get <laughs> okay to the let's trees. agree no no see i don't think it is this time watch so my wife and i went to london uh at some point in the pandemic in advance of going this will not surprise you we were invited by the UK government and the airline we were flying to upload a great deal of personal information. Mm -hmm. And it was just understood. This is the trade-off. If you want to go... Yeah, we got to comply. And hand off all this information. So we did this. When we landed in London, a giant international airport, we were able to go from our seats to the cab stand, I would say in under 15 minutes, and we didn't encounter a single human being when it came to border control. There was a face scan, and we walked through. The efficiency-minded Canadian, pointing at myself now, dear listeners, was overjoyed at this. We just gained three extra hours in London as a result. The the American in my wife was really unsettled by this experience and did not like that a government had her information without her consent. You know, of course she said yes, she agreed. but, And also that she didn't encounter a single human being. Mm -hmm. She didn't like that no one said anything to her. Okay, Libra.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, in a sense, you're both right. Uh, Classic. Libra response. (laughs) Um, You know, all of these things are very efficient, there's no doubt about it, and there's a lot of good reason to employ technologies for things like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have, you know, high-speed computing uh, and processing capabilities now that can really streamline things like that. Um, there, There are several problems, though, that we need to guard against as we develop these type of applications. One is who has access to that data. Mm-hmm. So it's very important that the, the data is used for the reasons that are explained to you when you consent to it. And also that the consent process is actually very clear and understandable. For most people, that's not the
1: Not case. the doom scroll to the bottom so you can just hit. Like,
0: there's agree. a big problem with the consent process being broken. And it's really not. It, it's a consent process that in most cases is to protect uh, the institution asking for the consent from some kind of legal liability rather than protect the user. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the consent process is entirely broken. Um, but separate from that is who has access to the data? The reality is in the world in which we live, uh, increasingly so in a lot of cases, oversight and public accountability is flawed. Mm-hmm. So that data may be, go into some database that should only be accessed by certain individuals for certain reasons, mm-hmm but then it gets shared or leaked out to other agencies that then employ it for other more sinister reasons, or maybe they're just careless about it. Um, data breaches are a daily occurrence. So we want to make sure that that data is handled in a way that doesn't put your own security at risk down the road in some unintended fashion. Um, then there's another problem, which is that we now know, thanks to research by Citizen Lab, other groups that The algorithms that are used in these, um, especially at at border checkpoints, Mm -hmm. type of algorithmic surveillance that goes into um, any type of screening, whether it's for immigration purposes, refugee cases, criminal proceedings, contains biases, prejudices that uh, tend to discriminate against historically marginalized communities, uh, people of color, um, there, there's embedded racism mm-hmm. in it, if you will. So even though you're not seeing a person as you transit through that airport and it seems all very clean and efficient and so on, the, the human element to it surrounds it. You can't right. escape That's it. Well it's fair. deeply
1: embedded in it. And that
0: includes human prejudices. And, well, and this corrects
1: and against maybe the um, the idealistic, if not myopic idea that there can be no prejudice because it's just a system. It's just a computer. Right. But we okay. forget, that, of course, at some point someone wrote this out That's right. Computers are programmed by humans. Yeah. They're social constructs. Humans make mistakes. I was reading an article recently suggesting that in Russia, there has been the most downloaded app since the war began is Telegram. Mm-hmm. As an alternative news source for dissidents, more or less, which... is as a different hearing here, if you say telegram perhaps, Mm -hmm. right, in let's say the North Atlantic. When it comes to something like misinformation, um, what has the pandemic accelerated and what do you see as um, the kind of very specific challenges it creates for us as we leave a pandemic era? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I I wouldn't so much as say the pandemic accelerated anything. The pandemic was uh, victimized, Mm -hmm. if you can use that language by the structural conditions of the media age in which we live. So if you look at it abstractly as a scientist and say, okay, uh, our society is entering into a very um, risky pandemic, and what is the type of information we want circulating? What what do we want people to consume in terms of uh, information? How do we want people to communicate? Uh, If you mapped it out and then looked at what we have, Mm. Uh, what we have is the, probably the antithesis of everything that every scientist would want to see. Uh, we have instead a media environment where uh, content is specifically selected out to uh, sensationalize, to tap into people's emotions. It's also coming at you in such a tsunami-like fashion um, that it overwhelms you and creates a, a, a kind of paralysis because people feel like there's so much information that they can't um, pause and discern what's legitimate from what's not. Uh, Layered on top of that then, is the fact that um, many malicious actors up to the level of nation states are treating social media as a giant disinformation laboratory. So in 2016 with Russia, we saw the first inklings of what this might look like, kind of primitive. Cambridge Analytica at the same time gave us a glimpse into the commercial side of it now that whole industry has matured and exploded so there are numerous dark pr firms that are experimenting with the propagation of disinformation and i I believe that what we saw during the pandemic was a sad outcome of all of this combined in other words people were misinformed Um, they were uh, reacting according to their emotions Uh, they were uh, uh, kind of pushed into a frenzy, mm-hmm. even, um, and, and you can see the, the impacts of it by looking at, um, for example, threats to health, health workers, to nurses, to doctors, right up to the level of death threats. Um, so it's a good, uh, to me, it's not that the pandemic accelerated things, it's more that it illustrates um, how risky the situation is that we find ourselves and how we need to urgently repair the underlying conditions, because the next time it might be something far worse. And if we're not prepared to have rational discussions, but at a bare minimum, have conversations uh, without this kind of, you know, the the, the outside interference and then the underlying kind of manipulation, um, we're really in
1: trouble. Um, Okay, so with all of those points in mind, Final question. What's a reset look like now, given just how fully invested all of us are in technological infrastructures and mediations?
0: Yeah, it's, you know, I I put it out there provocatively, hoping that during the time of the pandemic, at least people would kind of take a pause anyway and reflect on their larger circumstances But it's very difficult to walk things back, uh, given how deep we are in it. And it seems to be only accelerating, actually, our embrace of technology, that is, and technological solutionism. Um, Things are getting worse rather than better, in my opinion, with some exceptions. Um, The world is sliding into authoritarianism. Um, Pretty bleak picture, actually, when you factor it against the existential risks of climate change and the climate crisis. Uh, if we're living in a system that is, you know, uh, privileging disinformation, which I believe the social media companies do, not intentionally, but it's a byproduct of the algorithms that uh, are designed to uh, retain our interests, mm-hmm. Um you know this is a disaster. This really is. There's no other way of looking at it. We're 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 creating the conditions for our own demise as a species, on top of uh, what we've done with the climate crisis. So we do need a reset. I I believe that this is uh, an urgent imperative for the human condition. Whether we do it or not, well that that remains to be seen. I I think the the silver lining here is. It's not like we have to invent some new fancy thing to get ourselves out of this situation. It boils down to some basic concepts that are inherent to politics, in my view, around oversight, public accountability, principled democratic governance. If we apply these systematically, we can claw back some of the problems that we're seeing, I hope. That's that's the rationale for what I do anyway.
1: What now? is a production of University of Toronto Communications. It's hosted by me, Randy Boyagoda, and produced by Lisa Lightborn. Follow us and listen wherever you get your podcasts.